Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with my co-host today, Barbara Brocher from WFIU and WTIU. Asian carp are wreaking havoc on rivers across Indiana. Most recently, they've been found in Monroe County. The invasive species has been detected in Salt Creek, sparking fears that the fish will make their way into Lake Monroe. The Department of Natural Resources is alerting fishermen to try to prevent that from happening. And this week on Noon Edition, we'll speak with uh, four experts about this problem. We have three guests with us in the studio. Dave Kataka is State Department of Fish and Wildlife Biologist. Andy Beltman is Assistant Southern uh, Fish Research Biologist. And Eric Fisher is Aquatic Invasive Species Coordinator for the Indiana DNR. Also, uh, Ruben Goforth is going to be joining us by phone. Ruben uh, Goforth is Associate Professor of Aquatic Ecology at Purdue University. If you have questions or comments, you can give us a call at 812-855-0811 or uh, uh, 812-877-285-9348. You can also join a live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. And you can follow us on Twitter at noon edition. So thanks, everybody, for being here with us today. Well, thank you. And Barbara, thanks. Good to co-host with you. Yes, it's great to be here. And I know you, uh, I, you had a story on the air this morning about this issue. Can you give us like a nutshell about what this is about? Yes. Well, we've heard a lot about Asian carp, not just here in Indiana, but throughout the Midwest because they've been causing a lot of problems. A lot of people know of them because they're the fish that jump out of the water, but uh, they're an invasive species. And uh, Eric, perhaps you can tell us a little bit about why are we hearing so much about these fish and what makes them such a large problem? Well, we're hearing a lot about them because being introduced to our lakes and our, I mean, our river systems, they're, they're reproducing at incredible rates and filling up our rivers and creating a great deal of uh, competition with our native fish species. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there, I just have to say to set the tone for this, if, if people haven't, haven't seen um, these fish or don't really know what we're talking about, um, I had the unfortunate uh, trauma of seeing a video of these this morning. <laughs> and oh my goodness, I mean, these, these two people are coming, going down the Wabash and these fish are jumping out of the water and some of them, weigh, how much do they get to weigh? Like, The state record, I think, is... 15 and a half, but they get much larger of the silver carp, uh-huh. one so, of several Asian carp species. So they're jumping, you know, up and up out of the water. And in fact, in this, I don't know, 10 minute video, 19 of them landed in this guy's boat. And once they're in the boat, you can't take them out, right? Or yeah. you shouldn't. You shouldn't. Yeah. The, st- yeah. the state law is that if it jumps in your boat, you're supposed to kill the, the fish before yeah. Dealing with them. Before it kills you. Yeah, well, <laughs> or damaging your boat. <laughs> right, yeah. right. And that can ha- that actually, I mean, that is a serious enough problem that if you get hit by a fish, you're, you're going down the river. I mm-hmm. assume it could cause pretty serious damage to a person. Broken jaws, broken noses are mm-hmm. common if you, if you surf through the uh, YouTube videos. It, yeah, right. It's, uh, it's, it can be quite unpleasant if a 15-pound fish hits you while you're driving down the river. So in addition to being just a threat kind of to recreation in that respect, do we know what impact these fish are having or potentially could have on the rivers that they're, they're taking over? There have been studies that have been showing a decreased size and health of some of the other fish that also filter feed in the rivers, paddlefish and uh, a gizzard shad and those sorts of well, native you know, species they're, they're filter feeders which means they're fill, you know basically you know on pretty much the the bottom source of the food chain so every fish that hatches out of an egg has to eventually you know they start on that type of food whether it's a predator or a filter fish like a paddlefish that eats it their whole life these fish are competing for food for all larval species mm-hmm. at least in the very beginning and um, plus they take up a lot of space Mm-hmm. So, now Ruben Goforth is joining us from from Purdue. So, Ruben is a professor of aquatic ecology. I mean, how what, how would you characterize these fish, these Asian carp? <laughs> uh, well, I would first off uh, characterize them as being uh, essentially a an ideal invasive species. 
uh, they are extremely successful uh, because of a number of different factors. And uh, one of those is their ability to uh, reproduce very quickly. Uh, at one point, we uh, were able to collect eggs out in the Wabash River here at uh, Lafayette, West Lafayette, and discovered that they uh, had up to almost 12,000 eggs per cubic yard of water in the Wabash at that time. Um, and the river was moving at about a yard per minute at that point. So the, the enormity of this spawning event is, is to me, almost incomprehensible um, just in, in terms of the numbers of individuals that could have uh, joined the population as a result of that particular spawning event. But the other thing that we see with them that, that has been very surprising is that they don't always behave in uh, ecosystems that they've invaded like they do uh, in their native ecosystems in, in, uh, in, in uh, Asia. And so uh, they become a little bit more of a, well, actually a lot more of a, a moving target in, from a management perspective because they often do things that we don't expect them to do. So like what? So, for example, um, they, uh, they will spawn over a longer period of time in uh, the Wabash River compared to what has been reported um, in Asia. And so instead of uh, just doing all of their spawning in the late spring, early summer, it uh, turns out that they will spawn throughout the summer in the Wabash River. Not Maybe not quite to the same extent. You know, they're not putting as many eggs in throughout the summer, but they're sort of trickling in the mouth um, over the entire summer. And you know, that has uh, some potential benefits. The eggs at that point that hatch, uh, maybe they don't have the same kind of competitive stresses that they would encounter if they were part of the big slug of eggs that comes out in the late part of uh, the spring or the early summer. Uh, the other thing that we're finding is, is that some of the environmental cues that have long been recognized as uh, being important for them to be able to spawn in the first place aren't necessarily um, you know, something that has to happen in order for the fish to spawn. So in particular, it was long thought that uh, you really had to have a big change in the, uh, in the amount of water flowing through the river. So a big precipitation event, uh, a stark rise in the river, and then it, what would happen is, is that they would start uh, um, reproducing as the water started to decline. But what we found is that they don't necessarily have to have that big spike in flow. They can spawn without it. Now, do we see even bigger spawns when, you know, all of these different factors come into play at once? Certainly. Uh, but the point is, is that they have the flexibility to be able to spawn uh, without these kinds of environmental cues that we long thought uh, were necessary. And that has some pretty important implications for where these fish might become established down the road. At, at this point, are we only seeing these Asian carp in rivers in Indiana? Have they made their way that we know of into any reservoir? It, as far as reservoirs, um, I have I managed some uh, strip pits over in uh, Sullivan County, the Green Sullivan State Forest, um, and uh, those pits uh, they're they're connected by a network of streams and one of which is that Busseron Creek system that dumps right into the Wabash. And as a result, um, I found uh, silver carp many miles inland at some of these pits, that, and they, they basically came in through the creek system. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they're reproducing or if it's a, you know, those pits, there's really no restrictions as far as the amount of flow. So I'm assuming during high water that they're, the adults are swimming up there, but I haven't really found haven't really looked enough to, to see if there's any juveniles in there. And that's, that's one of the uh, big reasons why this sort of got on our radar here in Monroe County because, so can you explain the situation at Lake Monroe and what the fear is about Lake Monroe? Oh, sure, sure. Um, back in 2010, we actually had an angler uh, videotape adult Asian carp jumping in, you know, basically the tailwater, the, you know, the outfall of the dam. Um, and since then, we've been... Um, so, so we sort of knew that they were in and around the area. Uh, this September, or I guess it was mid-September, uh, our summer aide was just out there on a weekend sort of milling around, and he did see small Asian carp jumping. The water flow was uh, at minimum flow, so it's really low. So there's not much water coming out of the dam. 
And what is, he could see these little fish jumping, um, mm-hmm. trying to jump into the outfall. And then as he looked closer, he could just see see tons of them swimming around. So I sent him down there with a cast net, which is uh, it's a common uh, net used to, to collect bait fish. Um, and uh, he made less than a, you know half a dozen throws and picked up 50 of these things, all about the same age. Uh, same size and um, he actually found you know dead Asia carp on shore um, and I asked him well do you think they they got washed up you know from the tailwaters and just got stranded and he said no these are like 20 30 yards up around the you know around the pipe so they had you know they didn't jump up there uh, if someone physically handled those fish and whether they were trying to sort out the gizzard shed for bait or or whatever um, they left a pile of them. So mm-hmm. we try to, we post that area every year with new signs and new educational material to, uh, you know, basically educate the anglers that there is a difference. Uh, it's very hard to tell the difference between a small Asian carp and uh, a gizzard shad. So mm-hmm. if the carp were to accidentally be introduced to Lake Monroe by, mm-hmm. the, you know, maybe a fisherman who mistakenly used it as bait. What impact could that have on Lake Monroe? What what could that mean? Right. Well, you know, the a lot of the older past research, which is really not that old, I mean, just within the last 10 years, said that they, they need specific spawning conditions. But, you know, what, what Ruben was alluding to, that they're very adaptive. So we really don't know. Uh, how they would handle living in Lake Monroe. Um, I'm sure the adults would probably live their lifespan. Uh, would they be able to successfully spawn? You know, we don't really know. Uh, and the best way to, you know, take care of the issue is not let them in. So, because we really don't want to find out the hard way that, yeah, they can do fine out there. So, um, Okay, we we have a phone call, so let's go to, uh, to Lee from Monroe County. Lee? Hey, go ahead. Is there a way to encourage people to fish them out? Uh, Asian carp works just fine in some of the classic recipes for carp, like um, canals, fish dumplings. Right, right. Um, well, you know, we we said earlier they're filter feeders. They're very difficult to catch in traditional methods. It's, uh-huh. um, you know, you just your worm and hook and bobber are, um, you might get lucky and catch one every once in a while, but uh, I think the way most people come about them is they jump in their boat. So um, that's an opportunity, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, in the uh, just you know, in the past couple of years, we've been trying to promote um, actually eating the fish. So oh, good. Uh, they're, um, they're fishy and they have lots of bones, but the recipes mm-hmm. that take the bones out um, are. Quite good with them. Right, we've 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 served them up actually at our Hoosier Outdoor Experience this year up at uh, Fort Benjamin Harrison. Oh, super! And people just loved it. Um, uh, there's, you know, you said they're very bony, and that's true. Uh, there's different ways of flaying it out, and if you get on YouTube, you can find all sorts of ways of preparing these fish. And um, the meat is very mild. I mean, if you have a good recipe for uh, batter. or or marinade, they're actually very good to eat, and very firm. Well, and, and the thing is, is that uh, they have a stigma attached to them because most people that hear that name carp automatically assume that they are similar in taste and that kind of thing to common carp, which have been around uh, since the late 1800s. And so, but they don't. They're very, very different in that they feed at a very different level um, and so the meat from these fish is not like uh, common carp at all. It's very, very different. And so that stigma of you know them being called carp uh, is an impediment, I think, to people eating them, and that we just have to kind of get over. And in fact, you know, if it makes folks feel any better, they can think of them as being uh, Mississippi tuna instead of Asian right. carp. <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks a lot for the call, Lee. We appreciate Thank it. You. 
All right. Our phone numbers again are 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside the Bloomington area. Or you can join the live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. And you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Andy, you haven't uh, been able to say anything yet. Uh, you're, you're the new guy, but you just you came up. You, you were working on the Mississippi River, right? Was this a problem down there? That's correct. Yeah. Um, it's actually a major problem in um, the Mississippi River. It's actually pretty much the focal point of where they began their expansion. Um, we haven't really talked about how they got over here, mm-hmm. so I'm going to take a little bit to talk about how they got over here. They were actually initially brought over here for aquaculture purposes. So in these aquaculture facilities, they're raising your farm-raised catfish, your hybrid bass, and selling them to your local grocery stores. Uh, so in these ponds, they were having problems with algal, algal blooms, the green scummy stuff mm-hmm. on top of the water. So to kind of uh, maybe combat this problem, they uh, brought Asian carp over to control this scummy stuff. And the reason why they wanted to control it was because this scummy algal blooms would give your catfish and your hybrid bass kind of a um, different taste to their flesh that wasn't really desired. It wasn't, it wasn't that good flaky white taste that you'd get from those farm-raised fish. So, like I said, they brought these Asian carp over to control this scum in these ponds. So now you've got all these carp in these aquaculture facilities, so what do you think will happen through catastrophic floods, which had happened in, you know, 1993 around in the Mississippi River area? Well, they got out, obviously, and they got out initially, supposedly, in the Illinois River, and from there, they just went into the Mississippi River, and Mississippi River is like a highway to all other major rivers, like your Ohio River and your Missouri River, and they've just been expanding from there. So a lot of my experience with Asian carp has been on the Mississippi River. Um, I worked there. I worked for the Missouri Department of Conservation for two years, and I specifically worked on Mississippi River fishes. And going along with what Ruben said, we have noticed declines in our native filter feeders, like our buffalo and our paddlefish and gizzard shad. We've noticed declines in those, and like it's been alluded to before, it's because probably because they're in direct competition for that planktonic resource because they're all filter feeders. Yeah. So what, what, what can you do about them? Right. So <laughs> what, what, what can we do about Asian carp? Well, they actually have a lot of uses um, for humans. Um, you can use them for fertilizer, throw them in your tomato garden. You can, I don't know, feed your cat with them. But the, ma- the big thing I like to push and what we've alluded to already is you can eat them. I am a huge fan of eating Asian carp. Uh, I've been part of what I did in uh, Missouri was largely going out and educating the public about Asian carp and showing people how to fillet them. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a way of filleting them boneless. You can, uh, they just have a couple Y bones in them, which is really easy to fillet around. And that's largely what I did to educate the public about Asian carp in Missouri was doing these demonstrations. I'm actually working with our media coordinator here in Indiana to try to get a video together on showing Indiana how to flay them out boneless and how they can prepare them because they are delicious fish. Mm-hmm. And uh, so really what we're trying to do right now, I think in the Asian carp battle is educate the public. We're trying to um, do a lot more research on them, understand them a little bit better. And I think the biggest um, biggest efforts right now are in prevention and preventing them from moving into any of our other body waters. Mm-hmm. As far as eradicating them. There's a lot of crazy ideas out there. There's been research that's attempting to try to eradicate them, but to this point, there's no, um, I guess, like... Magic bullet. Magic bullet. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. Yeah. yeah. Right. So that's up to this point. That's my been my experience with Asian carp. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, so I, I have this question, a follow-up question about eating them. So they're difficult to fish. So basically, if the they just land in your boat when you're out there on a river. Is that the best way to try to get them? Right. So Sounds unless dangerous. you have the unless, easiest way. The easiest yeah. way, yeah. yeah. But there's actually a very popular sport fishing arising um, in these past few years, and that's bow fishing. Bow fishing is becoming a huge sport. And it doesn't, I mean, obviously, you don't really need a boat. You can do it from shore, and you can buy old cheap bows and just rig them up to go bow fishing it's very easy and uh that's one way to do it and indiana it's illegal to snag 
it's been banned for for recreational purposes. However, in other states, can I'll you define use, snag? Okay, so in Missouri, <laughs> they actually have what's called the snagging season, mm-hmm. and people go out and they use these huge treble hooks, which okay. has three po- different points on them, and they put on big weights on these really big, like twelve foot long rods, and they throw this heavy weight out there with these big treble hooks out there and they rip these hooks through the water and what they're attempting to do is they're attempting to catch a paddlefish which we've talked about asian carp are having possibly having a direct effect on paddlefish and these paddlefish are really cool native fish they're an ancient fish they swim around with the dinosaurs i mean they're very cool fish and they're most notable by their really long rostrum or long nose and uh yeah so people are going snagging for these big cool ancient fish and um what happens is at least in the mississippi river you come across asian carp more than you're coming across paddlefish when you're snagging so that's just that's one method of fishing for them however like i said in indiana you cannot snag it's illegal Um, but in some states you can go snagging for them you've mentioned that perhaps the best way to catch them is to have one jump into your boat but what makes these fish jump? And is there a way to get them to jump? I was on the Wabash earlier this week, right. and the guy was just pounding on the floor with his feet. I mean, is that effective? There is, uh, you know, there's a thought that certain RPMs of your motor, people have it that fine tune. I don't know if you could add anything to that, Ruben. You know, it's still kind of a mystery, and to, and to some extent, as to, you know, really what makes them jump and, and what, you know, why they do jump in the first place. I've actually had them jump in the river just by waiting in the river. Um, I've had my crews that are paddling down the river in a canoe to do tracking of fish that we have uh, transmitters in have uh, have scared up uh, silver carp jumping as a result of them just paddling in the water. So um, it, it's a very interesting uh, behavior that is not something you see very often. And uh, we still don't really know exactly why it's uh, not or why that happens, right? But uh, certainly, I mean, every time I've been out in the boat uh, with a motor on it, that seems to stir them up pretty decently. And if you make a bit of noise, yep, they get they get kind of antsy and start jumping. Right, right. I know, um, you know, and you had mentioned earlier there are different habitats or there are different habits from Asia between here and here. It's my understanding that they don't jump. In Asia, is that correct? Supposedly, I, that is my understanding that they don't jump at least to the same extent that they jump here. Mm-hmm. All right, we're uh, we're sort of hitting halftime here, so we're going to take a short break. Um, you're listening to Noon Edition on WFIU, and we're talking about the issues with, with Asian carp being in Indiana's rivers and possibly going into some of Indiana's lakes, trying to keep them from doing that. So we'll be right back after a short break. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back. You're listening to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with my co-host today, Barbara Brocher from WFIU and WTIU. And we have uh, four guests with us so, that are, have joined us to talk about um, invasive species, particularly the Asian carp that's been um, sort of bedeviling some parts of Indiana. Uh, Eric, or Dave Kataka is here. He's the State Department of Fish and Wildlife Biologist 
Andy Beltman, Assistant Southern Fish Research Biologist, Eric Fisher, Aquatic Invasive Species Coordinator for the Indiana Department of Natural Resources, and Ruben Goforth, an Associate Professor of Aquatic Ecology at Purdue University, joining us by phone. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348. You can also join the live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Um, let me start out by asking Eric about, um, you know, you, you deal with aquatic invasive species, a variety of them. Where does the Asian carp fit sort of on the, the top ten most wanted lists? High, very high. <laughs> ne very nearly number one, probably. Uh -huh. What are the What are some of the other issues that you deal with? Aquatic plants, uh, specifically hydrilla, and uh, some uh, a couple other uh, ornamental aquatic plants are pretty high on our our uh, watch list, including mm -hmm. a couple other uh, small fish, minnows, and stuff that we're trying to keep out of the state proactively before we have these problems where. We're dealing with the results instead of dealing with keeping it out to begin with. Yeah. Can you explain when an invasive species like this is discovered someplace like Salt Creek, what's the process that the DNR has to track things to make sure these fish aren't getting into Lake Monroe? I call Eric. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, the the state of Indiana actually has on our website an actual form if someone wants to fill out a, a report if they found something that just doesn't look right. They've never seen it before. It's real easy just to send us a picture or just send us an, an email through that system that goes straight to my desk. And being the regional or the statewide coordinator, I do a lot of identifying of a lot of different uh, aquarium fish and plants that shouldn't be there. Mm -hmm. And some a lot of uh, native species that people just aren't aware of. But I get calls every year or emails that, uh, you know, citizens will find these anglers will find these fish and they can email me um, all of our all your district biologists are on the website on the indiana dnr website so you can figure out who your contact person is mm -hmm. and um you know you email us a picture it seems to be the easiest way anymore we used to you know back in the day you know we would meet them at mcdonald's halfway and they have this uh fish on ice and we would identify it so <laughs> it's things are a lot easier now and you know, so get a good picture from from all angles and just yeah. a click of a button, then it can be. And I always say it's a, it's a blessing for smartphones and Facebook because mm -hmm. we we get reports now from people still sitting with the fish in the boat. You know, it's it's a lot easier to report things than it used to be. So I know Andy was talking about how the Asian carp got here, and it sounds like they were trying to clean up one problem. They created another. Um, I'm thinking about, say, I get to ask the dumb questions on here, being the host. So I think about, you know, when you go into like a Petco or a place like that and they're selling fish that are in aquariums and all that, are all those fish, or would any of those fish be a, an invasive species if they were, if somebody decided, I don't want these anymore, I'm just going to go dump them in Lake Monroe and see how they do? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Traditionally, Griffey Lake is a popular dump site. Is it? Um, and in Monroe Reservoir itself, I think this spring I caught uh, like a 12-inch koi, which is an ornamental carp, and a uh, you know probably an eight-inch big goldfish. Um, just this year, I've had reports of paku being caught on Monroe and um, uh, places like I don't know if you remember Griffey Lake had a, an outbreak of Brazilian elodea. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, anecdotally, there was like blue fish tank gravel right on the wow. on the on the ramp. So you know that Brazilian LED is a very popular aquarium plant. Grows fast and uh, grows well in a enclosed situation like that. But it also grows really well in Griffey Lake. And um, you know that story was luckily we were able to get rid of it. But it definitely cost some time and money. Was that the was that why they drained the lake? That was a different issue. That was a different issue. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the past draining was for, I think they were working on the drain control structure for that one. Okay. So. But it's a good point to point out because, you know, you might have a tropical fish in your fish tank mm -hmm. and you're thinking there's no way this fish will survive and you're making the bad choice of dumping it in there instead of dealing with it at home and you're going to kill that fish anyway because he's going to die as soon as it gets a little colder. So you're not doing him any favors, but all the plants and potential diseases that fish might have 
could potentially affect the lake or reservoir or stream that you're dumping that into. Mm -hmm. How big of a problem, not just taking a fish from an aquarium, but taking a fish from a river to a different lake or between different bodies of water, water, how big of an issue could that pose to rivers and lakes? Oh, I guess in general, it's not a very good practice just for diseases. Um, and, you know, and then introducing a different fish, um, you know, like we said, it's always easier to prevent these things than to deal with them after the fact. And, you know, there's, there's, we have a pretty good handle on our, you know, native fish parasites, but we don't really, you know, if, even if it's a parasite off an invasive species, we really don't know much about that or, you know, until it becomes a problem, we don't even know it's there. So, you know, the best preventive way to do, you know, basically prevention is the best way. Don't move fish around. Right. Um, I get a lot of calls about people that uh, uh, want to stock their pond, but they don't want to buy fish from a hatchery. So their their friend's going to help them out and go to the river and collect a bunch of fish for them, bring them in their pond, and then you just really don't know what you're going to get. Yeah. All right, we have a we have a phone call, so let's go uh, to the phone. Stan from Bloomington is on the line. Stan, hi. Uh, a long time ago, there there was a popular practice of putting bounties on. Uh, Certain uh, mammals. Um, I'm not suggesting that that it would it would be something that would be highly popular. But if the Boy Scouts were organized and other groups that were raising money could earn something out of a state fund for turning in this fish, and perhaps uh, the fish could be turned over to a uh, a food processor for. Uh, uh, animal feed, or is that a possibility? It would take a little bit of organizing and a little bit of state money. Eric? Yeah, I can I can address that. I mean, people have floated that idea in the past, but with a mammal, probably what you're thinking is a nutria or something of that nature, a small aquatic animal, they have very low reproduction. So if that mammal only produces five other in the year, a bounty program can be incentive to go out and get those but with the fish especially with asian carp or a lot of these other fish that become invasive they're invasive because of their reproductive potential you could spend millions of dollars buying fish from a bounty program and you may only be getting five ten percent of the population just from sheer numbers of the fish out there i see and a lot yeah okay stan anything else no that's it okay Appreciate, we appreciate the call. 812-855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition. And you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Nutria, they're not here, are they? No. Okay. Where, 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 where are they usually? They're in the south, is that correct? Yes. yes. Okay. I didn't want anybody to... Miss South Mississippi River area. Okay. Gotcha. We've talked a lot about how this isn't just an Indiana problem. This is happening throughout the Midwest. And Andy, you mentioned that it's hard to get rid of them, but there have been some different attempts or theories on ways to contain them or prevent them from moving. I'm curious what other states have at least tried. Right. And um, that's, that's that's a kind of tougher one for me to answer. Um, based on I've got kind of a limited knowledge of other states, mm-hmm. but as far as Missouri goes, um, Missouri, like I said earlier, Missouri is doing a lot of educating, and they are doing some research. Um, there's been an idea floating around about a sound barrier being put in on the Mississippi River um, at a lock and dam, um, but that's been awaiting to see what happens with that um, with further research, but. Yeah, there, there hasn't really been too much on the ground running as far as I know. Um, I, I mean, I don't know if these guys can help me out with well, other states at all. Well, the Chicago Shipping Canal is, is a great example of, uh, you know, it's basically an open conduit from the Mississippi watershed to the Great Lakes. And, and I don't know how many years it's been up, but they have an electrical barrier that uh, runs 24-7 and is uh, basically managed yeah. by Illinois. And then I think the surrounding Great Lakes states chip in for that. Is that it's correct? It's a Corps of Engineer. Corps of Engineers. Yeah, they yeah. they manage the, and they've expanded the, what what they call the electric barrier a couple different times to add some redundancy to the size of it. But it was originally designed to keep fish from actually 
getting from the Great Lakes into the, the Mississippi, but that didn't work as well. And it's really providing the last line of defense between Asian carp getting up the Chicago area waterway system into the Great Lakes. And Ruben, I know you've done some some research on whether these electrical barriers may be effective in in dealing with Asian carp. Yeah, so one of the projects that my lab's working on right now is to see if we can improve uh, the effectiveness of of electrical barriers by changing the configuration a bit. So there's a, a student that I'm working with. His name is Brandon Benninger, and he actually identified the, the Chicago uh, Ship Canal, Sanitary Ship Canal Barrier as a science fair project that he went on to an international science fair on because he had concerns about the Great Lakes and, and fish getting into the invasive fishes getting into the Great Lakes and that kind of thing. And he came up with a, a novel design that uh, he was able to prove that 2% scale has some uh, distinct advantages over the current design. Um, and uh, we are currently working on a 10% scale of that barrier system. Uh, and in fact, this weekend, just this weekend, we're going to be running some tests to see um, if we, if everything scales up the way that we expect it to. If it does, then there could be some really nice advantages over this barrier uh, design because, for example, it would not require divers to get in the water to, to uh, hook into electrodes um, in order for the barrier to be serviced. Uh, if, you know, if, in, in the current case, that obviously means that the barrier has to be turned off in order for uh, the, that kind of maintenance to be done, and so that's part of the reason that they have some redundancy in the barriers. But in this case, we could potentially eliminate the, the, the need to ever turn the barrier off because of the serviceability um, also, there's been concern because there's a, a void that has been in the electrical field that's been identified under the, the at the rear of barges that are passing through uh, the Chicago Sanitary and Ship Canal uh, barriers, uh, where fish could potentially be able to swim through without being affected by the field. And this alternative barrier design uh, effectively eliminates that that void. Um, so there are several different uh, potential benefits to going to an alternative design that uh, we feel would be uh, much better than what is currently being used uh, for uh, trying to keep the, the fish out of the Great Lakes. And, and, and to be quite honest, I mean, it's a, it's a bi-directional thing. The big, the big concentration right now is to keep Asian carp, specifically at this point, big head and silver carp out of the Great Lakes. But in reality, the, uh, the barrier can also serve to help to keep fish that are invasive in the Great Lakes that are not yet in the, uh, the Mississippi River Basin from going down at the, uh, excuse me, the Mississippi River Basin on the Great Lakes. Mm-hmm. Have there any been any conversations or brainstorming about implementing not necessarily an electrical barrier, but some type of control mechanism anywhere in Indiana? As Indiana, I mean, we uh, we work with all the other state partners on a on a regional scale for a lot of these things, and you got to sort of think about our response to Asian carp as an integrated pest management situation, where there's research being done by one federal agency on potential like baits or you know feeds to draw Asian carp up into certain channels to where they could be use nets to get them out with the electric barriers to keep them from moving any further upstream where they're not currently at, and maybe even closing some locks and barriers at certain times of the year when Asian carp make the runs up rivers. It's a lot of little pieces from a lot of different agencies in a lot of states doing their little piece in a large integrated pest management to keep them from progressing any further. And on a state level, most of our efforts are talking to audiences like yours and distressing the importance of not moving Asian carp. It is illegal to move Asian carp. And if you're cast netting below, let's say Monroe Reservoir, and we know there's Asian carp there, there are signs that tell you that there are Asian carp there, and they can be easily misidentified, you need to be careful and not move fish and water out of those areas because you may not know what you're moving. Yeah. 
just in general, I mean, how how um, aware do you think you know Indiana fishermen are, anglers are, in terms of you know the idea that you know if you if you bring bait to Lake Monroe, you better know where it came from. That's a good question. I, that, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I know you don't know exactly how, right, how right. knowledgeable um, they are, but I think uh, you know just in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of press on what adult Asian carp look like. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, to actually see the difference between a small Asian carp and a small gizzard shad, I don't think people really realize that they're that, you know, that they're that similar. So, mm-hmm. yeah. But, uh, and I think it's one of those situations where when it's in your backyard or it's in where you ski a lot, you're going you're gonna to start your perception of the, the problem becomes a lot more you know, on your radar when they're actually in your backyard. Mm-hmm. So, Indiana, it's like as they move up the rivers, more people see them and more people become aware instead of everyone being aware before they get here. Mm-hmm. Dave, you mentioned how similar the Asian carp mm-hmm. and gizzard shad are. Hasn't there been some legislation passed uh, r- dealing with gizzard shad bait right, right. that could help with that? Our first major invasive problem was gizzard shad. So... Um, it's 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 a native fish, but it does disrupt and make it difficult to manage different uh, fish management scenarios. But uh, uh, yeah, recently we've just passed a law that it's illegal to possess uh, live gizzard shad outside of certain bodies of water. Uh, we have a striped bass and hybrid striped bass management programs at several of our big reservoirs, and the concession was that uh, you know a lot of those striper fishermen want to use gizzard shad for live bait. So we we already had a rule in the books that Brookville Reservoir, you could use that because that was our first striped bass program. You could use live shad. We just expanded that to the other ones. Um, mm-hmm. It's illegal to possess live gizzard shad outside the lake boundaries of those lakes. So even though the water's coming from Monroe, the tailwaters, uh, legally, it's illegal to possess a live gizzard shad below the tailwaters of Monroe Reservoir. Um, so we're, you're listening to Noon Edition, and we're talking with uh, four experts about uh, invasive species and about aquatic ecology and about the issues in particular with uh, the the Asian carp that's been uh, found in Indiana's uh, streams and that we're hoping won't be found in Lake Monroe anytime soon. So if you want to give us a call in the last 10 minutes, 812-855-0811 and 1-877-285-9348. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition. And you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. I want to go back to Ruben for a minute. And Eric, you might have some some things to add here. Well, all of you might. I don't know. Uh, but Ruben, I wanted to ask about uh, your whole uh, aquatic ecology program and some of the other issues that are really relevant to Indiana. So um, the other major focus in my lab at this point uh, in Indiana is, looks primarily at how stream uh, biological communities, and in this case when I'm talking biological communities, I'm talking about fish, talking about aquatic insects, uh, that often serve as an important uh, food source for the fish. Um, and the overall function of the streams is affected by the different ways that we use land um, in, in Indiana and beyond. Um, I've long been interested in, in how these biological communities respond to differences in, in land uses and that kind of thing. And, and quite honestly, you know, there's no doubt, there's no uh, contest that we have to use land to sustain ourselves. Um, But one of my interests is, you know, how do we continue to use land to sustain ourselves while at the same time sustaining uh, the biodiversity that we find uh, within those lands and specifically in uh, in streams. Uh, Indiana has a phenomenal diversity of, of different types of fish in the streams, I mean, you know, most folks say, oh, well, you know, they're just some minnows down there, uh, that kind of thing. But uh, there are often are a lot of folks that are very shocked when I show them pictures of some of the, the fish that we have in these streams, some of the darters uh, in particular that are related to uh, perch and walleye, uh, but they are much smaller. But they, the colors on them rival a lot of uh, fish that you would find in aquarium stores. And they're native fish that you find in Indiana. 
And so, uh, you know, another big part of what I do, as I say, is, uh, is uh, looking at how we can sustain uh, our native biodiversity. And, you know, before I came here, that also included a lot of work with uh, freshwater mussels, which is another group that's just very highly in peril. Uh, and that's uh, some work that I'd like to get involved with in, uh, in the near future. Um, but, yeah, that's, those are the kinds of things that I focus on at this point. Okay. Well, let me let me ask a follow-up question to that because, you know, you'll hear, you know, sometimes in political debate people will sort of scoff about how, oh, we're going to save the snail darter or this particular kind of muscle and why don't we just build that road and it shouldn't matter. I mean, why, why you know, why should it matter? What What's the importance of, of really taking care of these kind of um, native species? That's a very, very tricky question. I mean, you know, from uh, an inherent standpoint, you know, protecting our uh, the heritage, the native heritage of, of our state, of Indiana, I feel like is an extremely important goal. Um, in some cases, these animals, uh, this is the last place that you're going to find them, or this is one of the last strongholds that they have. And I think it's, uh, when, when you're talking about whether or not a species is going to persist on the earth or not, uh, that's a pretty weighty decision as far as I'm concerned. You know, there's, is that something that we really have the right to inherently say, yes, this species is desirable, yes, no, this one isn't. Um, and so I think, you know, just from an inherent uh, natural heritage standpoint, you know, we should have pride in the diversity of the organisms that we have whether they're stream, uh, lake, uh, terrestrial, doesn't matter. I think uh, we should have pride in that. And the other thing is, is that oftentimes uh, animals and plants do things that we still don't even recognize. And so, and we don't recognize um, what the consequences of their loss is until we lose them. And it's not that uncommon to get to a point where we have lost uh, uh, something and realize that we've got some pretty uh, weighty consequences in terms of uh, ecosystem services that are provided uh, as a result of what that organism does in an environment. So anyway, that's, I guess that would be my direct uh, response. Oh, I appreciate in, in that. Terms. I Dave? guess, uh, you know, Ruben talked about the diversity of fish species. You know, we have like 211, uh, 211 species of fish in Indiana. And about 80% of those can be found in our rivers and streams. And that just, that's where you're, you're going to find them. And, you know, the diversity of fish species is basically what makes that system so strong. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it can weather different types of, you know, whether it's a flood event, construction event, or pollution or disturbance, the more species you have, the better, better off you're going to be. And, you know, there's several of those species, you know, you mentioned the darters that are indicator species. If you find those in your streams, you you generally can feel like there's there's clean water there. Um, if you found them there ten years ago and you're not seeing something, there might be something going on there that you know it just doesn't. You're not always aware of everything that goes on. Mm-hmm. So, all right, good. Um, so we have a question from Twitter that uh, says, "Is the flesh of the Asian carp more or less toxic from pollution than native species?" Uh, I, I want to take that one. Okay, all right. <laughs> um, so, since they do feed on plankton, which is the base of the food web, they're extremely low in contaminants. And we actually, out of the old office I was at, we did, uh, we ran some contaminants on some heavy metals and found that um, when compared to catfish, um, their levels are so much lower and almost non-existent in some cases. And the reason behind that is, like I said, they're filter feeders and plankton has such a short lifespan of one or two days before plankton decease. So they don't have much time to bioaccumulate any nonmetals or any contaminants that are in the water. Therefore, since that's all that carp eat mostly, they're not going to really accumulate any contaminants. So. Okay. All right. Short and to the point. That's right. Good good answer. We only have to, uh, a couple of minutes to go, and I guess I want to get back to, the, to the, the topic of the day, the Asian carp, and just ask for each of your opinions. I mean, what, you know, how serious is this issue? What needs to be done to try to uh, eradicate those fish or at least mitigate where they are? And let's start with Reuben. And Reuben, only about 45 seconds or so. Yep, I got you. Um, I think we need to try to harvest them to the best of our ability uh, and promote the consumption of them, either 
for human consumption um, or for use in other uh, types of food products, uh, for fertilizer, uh, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be a trick, but I think that uh, harvest is our best bet. Okay, Andy? Behind Reuben, I would have said the same, <laughs> same exact thing. Okay, Eric? Oh, I mean, I, I can't disagree with harvest as being, you know, one of the, the primary ways of, that we're going to make it an impact right now. I mean, you you have your rivers and people, you know, they, they want to go out and fish. And this is a, a very fine, you know, food product for anyone who wanted to learn how to bow fish or even a crossbow in Indiana is legal. And it's an opportunity to learn a recreational sport as well as provide a quite a bit of you know food for your for your family recreationally and you know and in indiana and everywhere else i mean there's a lot of work being done to sort of find the best ways of mitigating these species eradication is not likely to be you know real easy and but maybe potentially some of the tools will allow us to limit their numbers to a a level where some of the the native species can still keep a foothold. Right, I think, you know, I think we really need to look at uh, the feasibility of it all, and uh, you know, let them run their course, and you know, utilize them as best we can, and maybe learn to live with them. But uh, prevention is probably the best way to go about um, prevention and education. You know, talk shows like that. I've learned a lot today. Mm-hmm. So it's it's. Just getting, you know, refreshing yourself on what's being done. You know, Ruben's doing a lot of great work, and uh, Eric's doing a lot of um, work, you know, throughout the Midwest with other, you know, with other states. So we'll yeah. find out about Andy after he's here for a while. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Andy uh, just going to eat them all for us. Yeah. yeah. All right. We're out of time, and you guys have been great. I want to thank uh, Dave Kataka, Andy Beltman, uh, Eric Fisher, and Ruben Goforth for being here with us. And uh, Barbara, thanks a lot. It's been fun. Appreciate your being here. For producer Drew Dodlin and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Publichealth.indiana.edu. And Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.